chapter of Philippians, verse 27, will be our starting point. These letters were occasioned by all sorts of things. In some cases, there was a matter of heresy that Paul had to address. Other letters were written to answer questions that the church raised. In one case, the letter was written because of a runaway slave. It's my opinion that the entire book of Philippians was written because there were two people in the church in Philippi that uh, couldn't get along. They rubbed each other the wrong way. They were engaged in some kind of disagreement or conflict. I have no idea what the uh, disagreement uh, was about. Paul doesn't tell us. But uh, in chapter 4, he pleads with Iodia, who was the name of one of these individuals, And I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. As is often the case, uh, the church was polarizing around two members who were having a hard time getting along. The church was on the verge of a split. And this is what occasioned this uh, letter. Paul begins with verse 27 with an appeal. Whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one person for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them, that is your opponents, that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved in that by God. For it has been graciously given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here, that I still have. The phrase that's translated, whatever happens, in the NIV is actually just one word in Paul's original text. It's the word mainly, essentially. There's another case where we have to keep uh, the main things, uh, the main things, and the main thing, as Paul puts it, is that we get along with each other, that we pull together as a as a team. It's a terrible thing, really, when Christians can't uh, can't stand each other, when they bicker, when they fight, when they blame, when they withdraw when they gossip, when they stab one another in the back, when they refuse to forgive and they refuse to care. We of all people ought to be known by our love for one another. If God is in our midst, that expression of his presence must manifest itself in a love for one another, an inexplicable love, a love that cannot be explained merely in terms of our temperament, our, our personality, but a love that, that comes from above. We've got to pull together as a team against a common foe. As Paul puts it in this passage, to not get along with each other is conduct unbecoming a Christian. The, the, the phrase that's translated here, conduct yourself, is is a word that was used in the ancient world 
that literally means live as a citizen, and was usually used to refer to Rome, Roman citizens, live as a citizen of Rome. And it would be particularly telling for the people in, uh, in Philippi because they held the unique status of a Roman province. They were a little Rome, or a Roman city. They were a little Rome outside of Rome, Rome away from home. And Roman citizens were expected to act in, in a certain way. Ugly Romans were not, uh, not permitted. That's what Paul is saying about us. We, we need to manifest the character of the citizens of the kingdom of God and when we act in ugly, mischievous ways, when we're cruel to one another, when we don't understand or try to understand one another, when we don't listen to one another, when we don't embrace one another, when we don't pull together as, as a team and we're belying the citizens the, the, our citizenship. We're not living true to the kingdom in which we're, we're citizens. We've got to pull together as a team. My, uh, as some of you know, our number two son, Brian, is a basketball coach over in Washington, and he just this past year took on a new job as uh, head coach of uh, North Mason High School just south of Bellingham or Bremerton, Washington, and uh, the team just this last year moved up one classification, and so they are playing teams from larger schools. It would be like uh, Bishop Kelly having to play Capital and Meridian and Boise and Centennial and schools of that, uh, of that particular class. Every game they played, they were outmanned, outgunned, outmaneuvered, outshot. It was a miserable season, terrible season, humiliating, embarrassing season. Brian's uh, concern for that team has been primarily that they learn to play together as a team because they've been demoralized, shoveled, separated, uh, critical of each other, critical of the coaching staff. And Brian's major effort has been to get them to love each other, to encourage one another, to comfort each other, to stand with each other no matter what happens, to stand against a, a common opponent. Instead of victimizing one another, seeing each, each other as the adversary, they were, they, he wants them to stand together as a team. While we were on vacation, we had an opportunity to see his team play. They're playing in a summer league. And I have to tell you, that's the high-fivingest, seat-slappingest bunch of basketball players I ever saw in my life. Brian and his, and his uh, assistants were roaming the the sidelines through the entire game and any player who came off the field got a big hug and a whack on the bottom and, and a high five. And even if they uh, threw the ball away or missed a, an easy layup or missed two uh, free throws, it didn't matter. It's all right, man, we'll get it next time. So get back in the game. And I thought when I saw that, that that's the way we as Christians ought to respond to each other. Way to go. So what if you landed flat on your face? So what if you humiliated yourself and humiliated me in the process? So what if you made me look bad? So what if you made a mistake? So what if you sinned? See, my job is, is to encourage and minister and care for you. Not, not to be listened to, but to listen. Not to be concerned about you're ministering to me, but to minister to you, to give the kind of help and comfort and encouragement that we all need to, to make it through life so that we stand together against a, a common foe. 
Some of you may remember Emlyn Tunnell, the, the old uh, New York Giants safety. Uh, Brian has one of his uh, sayings on the, on the wall in the locker room at North Mason High School. Losers assemble in small groups and complain about one another. Winners assemble as a team. I thought that's a winning strategy, not only for a North Mason high school basketball team, but that's, that's, a, that's a winning strategy for the church. Losers assemble in small groups and criticize one another and complain. Winners assemble as a team. Paul actually tells us that is a winning strategy. And that is the only strategy that, that we can call a winning strategy. Look at verse 2. Or, excuse me, verse uh, 28. This, that is, your united stand, is a sign to them, your opponents, that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God. Now, what he's saying is this. Standing together and love each other sends a message to the world. If we really care about each other in in a way that cannot be explained merely in terms of some natural propensity that we have, we love each other despite any lovableness in the other person. If we can really give ourselves away to each other and care about each other in this in this measureless way, then then unbelievers sit up and take notice. They can't explain us merely in terms of our background, our experience, our education, our temperament, our our, our intellect, our education, it, it, there's something unexplainable about us, and it brings conviction. Jesus put it another way, they'll, they'll know that you're my disciples if you love one another. That's, so, that's why it's so crucial for us to love each other. That's why it's so wrong for us to bicker and fight and divide up into, into warring camps and that's why it's so wrong for us not to forgive. Because it sends the wrong message to the world. We live in a world where churches are splitting right and left. What are we saying to the world? Unfortunately, there are times when we as Christians, within any one body, just cannot get along with one another. And we're speaking loud and clear to the world around us. But what makes them sit up and take notice and listen to what we have to say about the gospel is that the gospel is working in our midst. And it's changed us into people who really care about about one another. Paul says this is an, a proof, an omen to the world. They're gripped by the sense that they're lost. If we're living out our character as citizens of, of the kingdom. Now what follows in chapter 2 first are a series of incentives. It's my uh, understanding that the scripture never enjoins anything on us without encouraging us in some way. Not only telling us why, but telling us how. Because so much of Scripture, the mandates, the uh, commands of Scripture are impossible for us. And we, we read them and, and, and we have to face into our own inadequacy. There's a standard of holiness that, uh, that is beyond us as human beings. So we need incentives and encouragement and understanding and enablement. And what he does in chapter 2, in the, in the opening verses of chapter 2, is supply for us a, a series of, of wonderful incentives. If you have any encouragement 
from being united with Christ. There's no contingency in this word if. I'm not saying maybe yes, maybe no. We could well translate, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there is any comfort from his love, and you can bet your life, there is. If there is any sharing in common with the Spirit, if any tenderness, compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and in purpose. What's he saying? Well, he's saying that the greatest incentive to love others is the love of God. It's always true that we love because God first loved us. What does God do when we fall flat on our faces? Does he withdraw? Absolutely not. What if we are faithless? Is he unfaithful? No. He abides faithful. He cannot forget his own, Paul says. What happens when we make a mess of things? When we don't, we aren't the kind of people we ought to be. When we come off of the field humiliated, he gives us that high five, that slap on the back. Just get back in the game. You're okay. Still love you. You haven't outsinned my goodness and my grace. All you have to do is just contemplate the mercy and the grace and the goodness and the compassion and the patience and the tolerance and the forgiveness of our Lord. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And you say, I, I, I cannot fail to forgive my brother or my sister. I cannot fail to love them. I cannot fail to encourage them. It's that wonderful incentive of the love of God that drives us to, to, to love people in, in unexplainable uh, ways. Brennan Manning says, we shuffle about on, on fleet, feet of clay. He has a way of putting things uh, pungently. I look at myself, I look at the believers around me, and we're all, we're all doing that. We're all shuffling around on feet of clay. We all... We, we make horrible mistakes, miserable mistakes. We make utter fools of ourselves. What, what's our response to one another when that happens? Get back in the game. It's okay. You're all right. I love you. I accept you. And that incentive comes from the forgiveness and the love of God. I've mentioned before that um, it, it's always seemed amazing to me that our Lord could treat Judas with such equanimity and such love when he knew from the very beginning that he was the betrayer. There's a striking conversation in the upper room where the Lord points out to his disciples that one of them would betray him. And no one in that room but Judas knew who it was. Do you know what that says to me? That our Lord never betrayed the betrayer. He never treated Judas any differently than he treated any of the other apostles. Incredible! When he knew what Judas was, was up to, when he knew Judas's heart, when he knew what Judas would do, and he never withdrew from him, never tried to protect himself from Judas. He's always reaching out. It's okay, Judas. Get back in the game. Now, Judas was irretrievable. He'd gone too far, but our Lord never stopped reaching out to him. And that ought to be the pattern of our lives toward one another. We will love one another no matter what. And that incentive for that incredible love comes from God's incredible love for us, his willingness to love us just as we are. 
Now, the second thing that Paul does, he provides an incentive, but he also issues a command. And it is the most unbelievable command that I could put my mind to. Every time I read it, I think, Paul, you could not possibly be asking this. But but he is. Look at verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Nothing out of competition. We should not force our point because others are getting their way. Nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, out of pride. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You understand what he's saying? Paul puts it very clearly. We should think of others as better than ourselves. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? I look around and I see that that many of you are better dressed, you're better looking, you're more highly educated, your personalities are much more pleasing, your family of origin is much better. Does that mean that I should always be putting myself down in, in other people's presence? No, that's not what he's saying at all. Better in terms of their needs. In other words, what Paul is saying is that our aim ought to be to meet other people's needs rather than our own. He actually explains in the final in the final sentence, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a certain amount of self-interest that we have to carry on simply because we're human beings. But our goal should be to seek the needs of others before we seek our own needs. In other words, we need to seek to love others rather than to be loved. To listen to others rather than to be listened to. To understand rather than to be understood. To think more in terms of other people's hurt and pain and dislocation. Feelings of abandonment than than we think of our own. To listen to other people's stories rather than want to tell ours, to want other people to be to be praised and and to be in the center of things rather than to put ourselves in the center, to be willing to associate with the with the lowly and the down and the downtrodden. See? Incredible. To think more of others than you think of yourself. Now, Paul says the way to get along is not to establish who's right and who's wrong. Forget that. The way to get along is to give yourself away to others. That's the oldest and oddest paradox of all. You give yourself away, you'll find yourself. If you try to find yourself, you'll lose yourself. Now, isn't that amazing? That's how how to get along with your spouse. That's how to get along with your colleagues, your fellow students, your professors, uh, people you work with, your neighbor. Think more in terms of their needs than your own. Now that command is so incredible, he has to document it. And what he does is corroborate the command by adducing the example of our Lord himself. And what follows is one of the most startling texts in the New Testament and one of the most difficult texts in the New Testament. This is, this is one of the strangest 
uh, Christological texts in the New Testament, uh, texts about the person and work of Christ. They're, theologians' minds are blown over this passage. There are men who have given their entire careers, scholarly careers, to try to understanding this, this text. And I, I have to chuckle. Paul just throws it in as an illustration of the greater truth. It's so easy for us to miss the tree for the woods. What Paul is saying is that we need to give ourselves away to others to think more of meeting other people's needs than meeting our own. And he uses an example of of what Christ did, a little sketch from a Christian hymn or a poem. It's set up in poetic structure, and it goes like this. Your attitude, he says, your, literally your mind, your mindset, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. There are two verbs in this uh, passage that carry for uh, carry Paul's argument forward. The first is literally he emptied himself. It's translated in the NIV, he made himself nothing. The second verb occurs later on, verse 8, he humbled himself. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. And those are the two parameters, the two fixed points around which everything in this text revolves. Now, the great question to theologians is, is this. Of what did Jesus empty himself? He emptied himself. He humbled himself. Of what did he empty himself? Paul tells us that Jesus was in the form of God. That's literally what he says in verse 6. The NIV again translates, who being in very nature God. I think they've captured the significance of that, that phrase. He was in the form of God. It doesn't mean that he was in who is shaped like God. God is a spirit, has no visible form. But the word form has the idea of the outward expression of some inward reality. That's always been Jesus' job, if I can put it that way. That's his task, to make visible the invisible God. I always say to people that have trouble with God, those that have, were battered as children by their fathers or abused or or benignly neglected, who have distorted views of God. If you want to know what God is really like, just look at Jesus. Read the Gospels. That's what God is like. He's always been that way. He's been the visible expression of God. He was God himself by nature. Never ceased to be God. Then of what did he empty himself? Did he empty himself of his deity? No, absolutely not. How could the eternal God ever cease to be anything but God? Did he empty himself of the use of his prerogatives of God? Yes, he certainly did. He always acted as a man dependent on the Father. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. What he emptied himself of was self. Self-interest. He was God, but he didn't storm around on in Palestine and say, I want to be treated like God. I want to be served. I want to be catered to. I want to be ministered to. I want to be understood. He he didn't do any of that. He he was a servant. He made himself a servant. He uses the same word, form, 
as, as occurs earlier in the hymn. He was in the form of God, the outward expression of inward reality, became a servant. His whole life was an expression of that servant attitude. As he said of himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. That answers the question, how far should we go in serving others? Our Lord went all the way. He died in our service. He was always serving. It's the major characteristic of our Lord's life. Cooking meals for his apostles, if you can believe that. Washing their filthy feet. Doing things for them that they, in some on some occasions they could have done for, for themselves, but his primary concern was to minister to their needs and not ask them to minister to his. And that was the pattern of his life, and that ought to be the pattern of our life. And that's the only thing that will ever, ever pull us together as a team. That we love, care, give more than we want to receive. That was the character of, of our Lord. Put others' needs before his own. Well, you say, if I do that, I, I'll lose out. Listen to what Paul says about our Lord. Therefore, because he had that attitude that willingness to humble himself. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord never got what was coming to him in this world. He didn't get it until he was exalted, at the right hand of the Father. And there he received the name that is above every name. There's only one name that's above every name. And that's the name Yahweh. He was given the glory and the honor that was his due. But he didn't get that until he spent his life in service to others. Oh, how different from us. How different from me. You know, I want to get it all in this world. I want the goods of this world. I want to be loved and I want to be cared for and I want to be listened to and I want to be understood and catered to and I want people to gather around me and, and consult me and think of me as important and our Lord never did any of that. He gave himself away freely. He took upon himself the form of, of a servant, but he didn't miss out. He did not lose a thing. You know, what, what this passage is talking about is what we often describe under the, the metaphor of dying to self. Dying to our own ambitions. Dying to our own dreams. Dying to our own desires. Did it ever occur to you you're going to die someday anyway? <laughs> you're going to lose your house. You're going to lose all your goods. You're going to nobody's going to listen to you anymore. There'll be people that'll love you, you know, in absentia, but you won't have that kind of caring love on this earth that that you long for. You'll you'll have it there, but you'll you'll die someday to everything you have. Why not die now? Why not stop worrying about being ministered to? Why not give up those rights now and decide to serve? Incredible thing. That, that, that's, that's, the, that's the thing that Paul says makes relationships work. As the wise man puts it in Proverbs, 
Only by pride comes contention. What causes contention? What causes divorces? What causes uh, friction between friends? What causes relationships to break up? Pride. Somebody's being proud. What's the answer? Deciding who's right and who's wrong? No. It's humility. Giving up your wants, your needs, your desires. That doesn't mean you have to become a wimp. Our Lord was anything but a wimp. He didn't have round heels. He was no pushover for anyone. He stood on the basis of truth. But there was that mindset that when push came to shove, he was going to give up his his own needs and his own desires. And he wanted to love people more than he was loved. He wanted to listen to people more than they listened to him. He wanted to care for them more than they, they cared for him. And he let the Father take the consequences. And when he stepped into the presence of the God, he, he got everything that was coming to him. And so will we. See? So will we. You say, well, if I don't look out for myself, I'll miss out. So what? So what? You might in this world. But not ultimately. Not in the next. Let me leave you with uh, our Lord's words in John 12. Shortly before he went to the cross, he predicted his death. He said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Some of you uh, saw the movie Shadowlands, and you remember the remark by the young student, the Oxford student there, I read because I'm alone. It's so poignant. Let me tell you, let me tell myself, that if we're thinking that finding someone to minister to us, finding someone to love us will make us feel less alone, we're badly misguided. We will not. Our Lord puts it very clearly here. If you want to find yourself, you have to give yourself away. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. But whoever serves me, my Father will honor him. See, that's, that's the promise. And if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, he will exalt us in due time. See, not, not necessarily in this life. Maybe in this life. Not necessarily. My job is not to find myself in this life I have been found by God, and I will find myself in the next life. That's when I get what's coming to me. Our task in this life is simply to give ourselves away. Let me restate John F. Kennedy's old line. Think not what the church can do for you. Think not what your friends can do for you. Think what you can do for the church. Think what you can do for the body of Christ. Think what you can do. For your friends. Let's pray. Lord, we come to a text like this and we are we're mortified. Rebuked, humbled, frightened. Uh, we experience such a uh, such a range of emotions. We know it's right, but we fear the consequences of obedience. Remind us, Lord, that you're always working for good, for your good and for ours. That everything that's asked 
is for, for ultimate good, and you never ask anything for which you do not provide the enablement. And we're reminded as well that there's always forgiveness, that despite our failure, you're always there to encourage, to lift us up, to get us back in the game, to provide what we need to, to be what you've called us to be. Help us, Lord, to, to think of ourselves as servants. Make us willing to play second fiddle. To give away our rights, our prominence, our plans in order to think and to secure the best for others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.